Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. How are you doing? Hey, Laura. I'm very well. It's boiling up here in Newcastle. We've had about 24 degrees today. How's it been in Darlington? I know. Who knew in the uh, bright lights of the northeast of England that it's sweltering heat, which is great. It's just unfortunate neither of us have been outside today, but maybe a G&T later on, eh? That that sounds about right. And of course, we've got really exciting news happening this week as well, because the pick list has officially launched. We are live. We are a podcast. It is so exciting. And I know it's taken us a little while to decide on the name, um, but uh, I'm so pleased with the pick list. Absolutely. And thank you to everyone who got in touch and made some brilliant suggestions. It's so difficult to pick a name, though, isn't it? I mean, you'd think it was quite straightforward, but uh, we spent a fair bit of time agonising over um, the various options we had. But uh, I think we've settled on something that works for us. I think so. And it's great that we've got a couple of guests lined up as well over the next couple of weeks, too. So it's exciting to, to chat to them. All will be revealed. Absolutely. I mean, that's been one of the you know really gratifying aspects of, of doing this little experiment and then turning it into something a little bit more than an experiment is we've just had some really brilliant feedback. And we should probably say that if you're listening to this and you're in the food industry and you like this format and you fancy joining us for a chat, please get in touch. We're really, really keen to um, to, to line up some more guests for this. So are we going to kick off and go for your first pick of the week? on the new Picklist podcast. Yes. Let's do it. Um, so my first pick of the week, very on brand for us here on the Northeast, it's about Greg's. And um, it's an article from The Times by Miles Costello, uh, writing for the Tempest investment column in The Times. Um, what the article is doing really is weighing up the investment case for Greg's in the light of what's happened with the pandemic and the impact that has had on Greg's business. And in the course of that, I suppose it touches on a lot of recurring themes that we've talked about quite a lot recently in previous episodes, but that just remain as relevant as ever. And I suppose at the heart of, of this piece is this question, you know, how do you square social distancing requirements with a business model that relies on high volume traffic? Lots of people making relatively small purchases. What happens to a business like that when it just cannot do that high volume of traffic anymore? Um, and on the face of it, it's left Greg's in quite a tricky situation. You know, they had a very impressive growth story um, over the past few years. They had just announced record results before the lockdown happened. So this whole pandemic really has knocked the wind out of their sails. Um, what's interesting, I think, is that um, what Miles Costello is arguing is that there remains a really compelling investment case here, partly because of how innovative and agile Greg's has been in the past. 
it's already shown it can reinvent itself. It has shown it can embrace new trends. We all remember that vegan sausage roll and, you know, the partnership with Just Eat for online delivery. So, you know, and of course it sort of, it enjoys some really fantastic customer loyalty as well, especially up here in the Northeast. I mean, I don't know whether you um, have any new branches or any existing branches open in Darlington, but my local Greg's here in Heaton was one of the first to reopen and uh, there has been a queue outside every single day since. I did, uh, I, I'm not sure if there's any open in town yet. Uh, I think we've got about six or seven Greg's in, in town uh, and I'm a big fan, I'm not going to lie. Um, but when I did walk down there a couple of days ago, um, it wasn't open, and it was really interesting that um, a notice in the window that I had that uh, if they if anyone sees any damage to the Greg's property, a clear number to ring with a reference number relating to that store, which I found really interesting because some of the Greg's will be as you say, you know, on a high street where no one's actually passing, and you know glass put through or whatever it may be um, could be hugely costly to them across their massive retail estate so they're relying on that community effort to keep uh, any issues at bay but I'm a huge admirer of them as a business the way as you say that they've really invested heavily in MPD and pivoted Um, and as as it says in the article which which is a great pick they've invested so much in their stores and I suppose it's a little bit like McDonald's isn't it and investing in their estate with you know modern seating cafe culture they knew they couldn't just remain as a as a sausage roll (laughs) outlet anymore they needed to do something for the modern customer and uh, be and right through the day as well and and I guess some of the products that have done really well not only the the vegan ones uh, some of their breakfast offers so trying to make sure they spread that demand right right across the the areas of the day so yeah really interesting pick and uh, big fan of And, and I think what's so interesting about this piece actually kind of goes beyond the Greg's case or the Greg's business case per se. So I kind of felt like it sort of gave you a sense that we are perhaps moving back to a slightly more normal conversation about business. Because of course, we are still talking about the impact of coronavirus on on, on a retailer, on a feed company. But we're also starting to be talking about the core fundamentals again that we would have been talking about before the crisis, the ability to innovate, the ability to be agile, customer loyalty, you know, the sort of basics that have always mattered. They do still matter. And I think they are going to make an enormous difference in in certain cases to how well companies manage to come out of that crisis. So I, I took it also as an encouraging sign that perhaps that conversation about businesses is starting to edge a little bit further towards something um, a bit more normal. Yeah. What's your first pick this week? Uh, my first pick uh, is from a, an old colleague of yours, actually, uh, Rich Ford, who's now a strategy uh, director at Sherlock. And, and he wrote a really interesting piece in The Grocer um, for the 13th of May. Uh, and it's 10 ways coronavirus will impact future supermarket and restaurant design. Uh, and the, there's a couple of bits that tie over to what we we're just chatting about with Greg's. But he, he pulls out that the top obviously top 10 that that he thinks could be uh, potential changes. One of which, which is related to what we were just talking about, is drive-throughs and the growth of drive-throughs. And maybe that's somewhere, you know, Greg's do a little bit of of that at the moment, I believe, but something that they could expand on more and more, particularly in those out-of-town retail 
um, uh, setups that, that are more lending to that than obviously the high street. But a couple of others that it, that's mentioned in this article, which I found really fascinating. First of all, touch screens and the fact that, you know, more and more particularly quick service restaurants have moved to the touch screen uh, format. Um, and I guess reducing on labour and if you're going in for a a Mackey D's, maybe you just want to press the screen and go. Um, but actually, that's maybe going to become an issue for people and people are going to need to be communicated with about how um, effectively the um, disinfectant procedures are implemented across touchscreens in a, in a store, which, which is really interesting. Sustainability-wise, he also picks out uh, zero-waste initiatives and the fact, you know, these um, uh, no-plastic shops where you can go in and... Uh, take your Tupperware and fill up for muesli have grown and grown and you know you could go into Costa or to Starbucks and take your own mug well that that's obviously all stopped in the short term because we don't know the whole cross-contamination challenge um, so how will that affect us going forwards and he's saying here the holy grail will be to offer eco options that come with a hygiene guarantee so all of these flasks that we've invested in for so long to be able to take into our favourite coffee shop may, may, may be disappearing appearing and then one of the others I, I thought was really interesting was about contactless stores um and the fact you as we know amazon go have, have tried this in the states um last year and mns have tried it as well in, in london but this mobile pay and go enablement so we're not actually worrying about um someone on a checkout behind a screen then you're just doing it all in your own environment in terms of um your phone and, and your app on your phone and and grab and go so looking at all of that and he pulls out some some other great points so i de definitely recommend reading it it feels like more of a drive to automation and that engagement that we have um could potentially disappear and it links to an article that i saw in sky news they were talking about the uh, pub design and there was a really interesting article about how new pubs are, are going to look and, and they're pushing obviously towards reopening linking back to, to richie's article and they're saying there's going to be more disposable um, menus and placing orders using phone apps so you know what does that mean for the food category? You know, how many times do you go to a restaurant or, or to a pub and ask the waiter or waitress, what do you recommend? What's the special of the day? How's X? That's probably going to stop, at least in the short term. And how will that impact our sector, you know, or, or different sectors that are trying to, to get into a repertoire that's something, you know, something um, people wouldn't normally eat. So I think that's going to be hugely challenging. There's a lot in there. What were the things that stuck out to you and what do you think is going to look different? I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, there really is a lot in there. It's a fantastic piece, uh, really, really worth reading. I mean, I suppose I also picked up on, on the whole zero waste um, initiative initiatives, but also contactless stores. And the questions it raised for me were, were twofold. Um, so on the one hand, as far as zero waste initiatives are concerned, um, I had a really interesting conversation earlier today, actually, with the, someone for, for a report that I'm working on. And they were talking about how there's almost a temptation to read a little bit too much into how we are behaving immediately in the wake of the pandemic and how some of the some various businesses have been behaving. And she talked about a sort of almost a spirit of forgiveness about um, some of these uh, zero waste initiatives that perhaps were put on the back burner 
but that are going to, I think, come back because they tapped into such a groundswell of consumer sentiment and anger about excess packaging. I'd be really surprised if we came out of this and in a, in, you know, a few months time, once we, we have a better handle on what normal looks like, I th I'd be very surprised if we just decided, well, this is now not something we're going to do. You know, big, big companies, retailers, but also manufacturers have made some very high profile commitments on, on reducing plastic, on reducing packaging. Um, I, I wonder whether there's just a little bit of a delay, where there's an understandable reaction of, of people being, you know, cautious, being confused, being maybe a little bit suspicious of, of anything that's reusable at the moment. But I'm confident that that is going to come back. Um, on, on the contactless um, side, I thought it's a really interesting point about, on the one hand, you think, well, this is a store designed for these times, you know, no kind of interaction with staff or minimal interaction with staff, something that's really, you know, designed to take out any possibility that you might catch a, a disease from another human being. On the other hand, I mean, I'm someone who has always been quite comfortable taking um, self checkouts. Um, sometimes that just feels like a, you know, the best sort of most efficient um, option. I've really enjoyed interacting with store staff again. I wonder whether a contactless store in the current climate, where often going to the supermarket, you know, certainly in the early parts of the lockdown, felt like you know, one of the rare moments of social contact we were allowed to have, whether it's sort of going to make us reappreciate that interaction we can get with other humans, and whether something like a contactless store would have felt very clinical and very soulless in the current context. It's a great point, you know, and that reassurance it probably gives and that human contact. What do you think that means for food service then? And looking at that Sky article for, for restaurants and that feels really contactless when, you know, that's that's the whole part of eating out to have that camaraderie and service and all that great stuff. It feels like, that, well, they're suggesting anyway for, for the pub chain case to do that that was all going to disappear. I mean, I think it will be... Uh, there will be pressure on these food service companies to uh, change their business models quite dramatically. So I think I would agree with the sentiment of that article. I could see how we're going to be pushing more and more into, into that direction. But I think there will be a space also for companies, whether it's in food service or in retail, that really make a point of highlighting um, the, the human element of what they have to offer. You know, that sort of the, the efficiency argument, I think, it, again, isn't going to go away. And and there will clearly remain some concern about um, possible transmission of, of, of the virus. Um, so I, I, I can see that there will be a really compelling argument around reducing contact in those settings. But at the same time, I think we will be hungry also for, for human contact. And I think businesses that, that strike the tone right on that, I think actually have an opportunity to engage with customers on a more meaningful level than they would have been able to do before. Yeah. And the, the biggest news in that article is the snug is back. <laughs> yes, it's going to be, uh, you're not going to be in front of a roaring fire. You're going to be surrounded by perspex, but it's back, which is good. Excellent uh, news. What's, your, 
<laughs> Excellent news. Just what we're going to hear. What's your <laughs> second pick? Um, it's sort of tying into um, some of the conversations we've been having about automation. Um, so this is a, an article from The Spoon. The Spoon is a publication that's focused on food technology. Um, and this is a piece about Dutch grocery giant Ahold Del Hayes. Um, Ahold is on a quest to find a floor scrubbing robot to scrub the floors in its stores. Um, so it's launched something called the Cleaning Bot Challenge, where it's calling on startups and SMEs to uh, collaborate with it to create an autonomous cleaning solution. And it's sort of talking about some of the challenges it's seen around keeping floors clean. And it doesn't sort of specifically make the link to COVID, but it, there's a sort of undercurrent here. I mean, this is what they're saying. Um, in supermarkets, floors are cleaned once a day before each store opens. It takes cleaning personnel an average of two hours every morning to sweep the floors for dirt, mop the heart to each corners, and then go through the store with a ride-on floor scrubber. It is certainly both a time-consuming and labour-intensive activity. And of course, these stores have been incredibly busy um, of late, um, busy restocking and, and, and keeping availability high. Um, but of course, cleaning floors was time consuming and labor intensive before COVID as well. So um, there's a sort of interesting question as to why they are launching this challenge now, why they are deciding um, they, that, that this is something uh, that they need within their business now. And the uh, author at The Spoon, um, the journalist who wrote the piece, sort of posits that part of what this new focus on hygiene has brought us in the wake of coronavirus is the need to be incredibly consistent with our cleaning. And if there's one thing robots tend to be really good at, it's executing you know, repetitive tasks consistently. Um, so obviously there's been an expectation for some time now that coronavirus will lead to a boom in automation. And, and I suppose this is just one example of the sorts of initiatives or the sorts of tech we're going to start seeing a little bit more of. There's one sort of really intriguing question right at the end of the article that um, I'm really I'm, I'm really interested to follow up on, which is, you know, Arhold has chosen to do a public contest to find a cleaning robot, but there are cleaning robots out there in the market already. Uh, Walmart has some, for example. So why did they feel the need to do this? You know, are there certain requirements that have perhaps changed in the wake of COVID or... Did they just fancy holding a robot competition, uh, which also would be entirely fair enough. But um, they, they didn't um, manage to get any particular information uh, from Ahold on that as yet. But uh, I think it'll be an interesting one to watch. Just try and understand the motivation behind that a little bit more. I, I know. And that's why I thought when, when you first sent it over, I thought, God, I can't believe that doesn't already exist. When you think of that square footage, as you say, that needs cleaning every single day and consumers' concerns about cleanliness, particularly at the moment. But the labour requirement to, to do all of that is phenomenal. And it, the way it jumped to in my mind was um, Dyson. And you think, you know, he, he's, you know, been um, quite open over the weekend in the press about spending 500 million on a car, which he's realised, you know, just wasn't going to be cost effective to try and take on Tesla. Uh, and I'm thinking, actually, there's a, a, even a bigger opportunity to maybe get into the supermarket or industrial floor cleaning business. Um, to, so, yeah, there's, uh, there's obviously a lot of, you know, a, a lot of innovation out there. But uh, you, you said, I think automation now and the whole 
push to digital is just going to come so much faster than it was always going to come, but this is going to press the fast forward button on it for the food industry. Absolutely. What's your second pick for us? So uh, I look was uh, my second pick was looking at seafoodsource.com and this is an article by Nikki Homeyard um, on the 18th of May. Uh, and this was entitled Consumers Crave a Better Understanding of the Story Behind Food, says Cargill Survey. Um, and Cargill um, produce a quarterly survey um, and they have an unusual um, model in, in terms of the participants of that survey are across three places. US, which is it wouldn't be any surprise to us, Norway and the Philippines. So quite an unusual spread. And this is a survey of 3,500 people across those uh, areas looking at current perceptions of the wholesomeness of food with consumers listing health and well-being, sustainability and economic vibrancy as important factors. So this is Cargill's piece of research basically saying that we struggle to put a name on protein and we struggle to say, you know, particularly to consumers that, yes, they want to know more about the story behind food. But as we know, they're moving past the fixture so quickly, even quicker at the, mo- at the moment. Um, what is the catch-all that we can use to, to try and give consumers confidence for our products? And they're saying wholesomeness um, could be one. Interestingly, further down this article, though, uh, it then actually says that consumers don't know what wholesomeness means. Means. So they like it and it makes them feel warm and cosy inside. But actually, if you push them even, even further, they're not actually sure of the definition of that. And then this is all part of Cargill's um, work called Feed for Thought. Um, and they, as I say, they do it on a quarterly basis. But the, the splits across those different areas are quite interesting and not a lot in the UK or, or wider Europe apart from, from Norway. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's a robust survey? It's quite difficult to gauge, actually. Um, I had a look at the um, press release from Cargo as well that you sent through that sort of talks about this this piece of research that they've done. So I think it's certainly really interesting to think about some of the language that we use to describe food and to what extent that resonates with consumers or doesn't resonate with consumers. And wholesome is is certainly one of those words that um, could be um, a term that that consumers are quite attracted to. It made me desperate to see the data behind what they've actually put in the press release, because I think, you know, as always with surveys, it's all in the design, it's all in the methodology. And I couldn't quite gauge from from the article, but also from their press release, just exactly what they had asked people yes. and what options they had given them. Um, especially as in, you know, this isn't a, um, a a point that's sort of made in in the article um, that you highlighted because it's obviously focused on seafood. But in the um, press release itself, they talk about how. Um, eggs were voted most wholesome protein by a quarter of consumers in this survey. And then milk and seafood came next. Um, And meat was after that, along with plant-based protein products. And you kind of think, what was the list there? I mean, were those all the options? Um, And yeah, I just, it just feels like 
I, I would really have wanted to see some of the underlying data. I think that's really needed to help us gauge how, you know, how robust something something like that is. But I think the overarching question, which is, you know, what do you th people think of wholesome? What do they understand by that term? And is it therefore a a useful term for the food industry to use to engage yeah. consumers? I think that's a that is a really interesting question. But yeah, raw data, please, Cargill. Next time is uh, is, is what I would say. And Julia will do the analysis on it. I like it because when I think of um, products that are, say wholesome on it in the supermarket, there's not a lot of um, meat, fish, or poultry really that would cover that label so yeah it'd be interesting to see the data and see what it actually what was asked as you say and actually i think um an interesting point in there was about economic vibrancy yeah. again i felt like that was actually an aspect of, of what they had asked consumers that i would have wanted to know more about yeah. um you know i i was interested that the that even was something that would factor into yeah. a term such as wholesome. That's not an association I would have made naturally. So again, you just want to see exactly what they were asked because I think there's potentially some really interesting bits and bobs in there, but um, without access to, to the data behind it, it's, it's a little bit difficult to gauge. Ironically, we need transparency behind the transparency survey. <laughs> <laughs> Quite. Um, tell us your third pick. So my final pick this week is an article in Glossy. Uh, Glossy is an online publication that writes about the beauty industry. Um, they do some really interesting stuff around how beauty brands are embracing uh, the embracing digital transformation and there are often some interesting um, lessons that apply to to grocery more widely as well this is about beauty getting into the grocery business so there's a direct link here and it caught my eye straight away because I wrote a few pieces back when I was still on the grocer about the growing intersection between food and beauty of course we know that's um a few of the supermarkets, Sainsbury's in particular, but Waitrose as well, Tesco, um, they have for some time really invested in their beauty ranges. They've made some fairly sizable changes to, to ranges, listing some more premium products. Um, in some cases, um, such as Sainsbury's, really transforming the way beauty products are merchandised in store as well. Um, and then on the other side, you are seeing beauty brands that are starting to or have for some time used food language, visual cues, terminology to position their beauty products. There's some really great examples. And when I say great, I mean crazy to an extent, you know, shampoos that are sold as gluten free body scrubs made from coffee grinds, um, shower gels in packs that look like juice cartons. Um, in fact, shower gels that are sort of themed after popular sweets more general, uh, more generally. Um, and partly that is about being playful and, you know, sort of conveying, I suppose, a sense of indulgence. Um, but it's also about tapping into wider consumer trends from the food world and then translating them into beauty. And what the glossy piece makes clear is that that aspect of taking cues from the food world um, and, and just having greater overlap between beauty and food is something that's becoming an even bigger trend and is potentially being boosted yet further by what we're seeing with coronavirus and growing interest in wellness and health and immunity more generally. Um, 
brands are being much more explicit than they would have perhaps been in the past about about making that connection. And there's some great examples in, in, in this article of the sorts of products that are starting to emerge. I mean, inevitably, influencers are sort of part of the story here. And then they talk about Kourtney Kardashian drinking collagen beverages. Collagen generally is a, is a big trend in this sort of functional beauty space. Um, but also beauty retailers starting to offer grocery sections where they sell functional foods and beverages and supplements that are sort of target very specifically at um, improving your appearance inside out, yeah. if you will. Um, which I just thought is really, it's just such an interesting trend. I mean, some of the products are um, borderline, I would say. I mean, some of it looks like it's just waiting to be slapped down by a regulator, but there's also some really innovative um, stuff in there as well. And it just, I don't know what you made of it, but it, to me, it struck me as an area that's really worth keeping an eye on from a food industry point of view, because it's gaining traction quite quickly. And I suppose on the one hand, you think, well, is that going to start uh, getting some quite faddish behaviours and messages about food into the mainstream? But on the other hand, I thought, well, is there an opportunity here for the food industry to engage with a different segment of consumers through this beauty from the inside out trend? Because yes, there's a degree of novelty and faddism here, but I could also see how it aligns quite well with some really positive messages about food quality and taking care of yourself and your appearance by making the time to sort of make careful food choices. So yeah. it feels like there's a that there's potential here. Um, and if nothing else, it's quite fun to see what uh, what some of the NPD is um, that's that's making its way over as well. I love that article that you did in the in the grocer, and and I read that with interest. So I was pleased that you, you sent this over. Um, and you're right. I, I think this is so driven by influencers and such a, a dynamic market. And your word there is perfect. That intersection that the food industry could could watch this. Um, and I wonder if, wonder if it really first started when we started seeing vegan and that sort of thing on our shampoo bottles. And that was just you know it just slid in that that um, food language into healthcare products. And then you know it's, it continues to grow. But definitely my my social media I can't open it without an influencer telling me to you know buy a product that I'm going to eat or drink that's going to make my gut better and then I'll make better business decisions it's just <laughs> bombarded with it so and, and and it's high margin stuff and high value items isn't it then that's the thing you know for our industry that's predominantly running on wafer thin margins this is a, a huge opportunity in terms of I guess thinking of those rising stars and MPD areas to get involved or at the very least some of the products that our suppliers make to get into to um, some of these products too because as we were saying earlier about the Cargill report traceability and transparency is going to become even more important so I don't know, if, if some of these products are running on a bit of a value production at the moment, then ultimately they're going to want to have to say, well, it's, you know, being grass-fed or locally sourced or what, whatever the, the ingredients may be. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I think there's definitely an opportunity potentially around some of these more premium products. But I think actually what I find most interesting or most encouraging about this, I think is that sort of underlying shift in, in attitudes, something that says, you know, if you care about your appearance and you care about beauty, which, you know, many of us do, um, then there's a really important role that the food you eat 
can play as well and yeah. and I think yes on on some level that can mean having you know very specific premium functional beverages um or you know your collagen lattes and uh, whatever that may be I, I can see how that can play a role but I also just think that's a you know, that's a that's not a bad message, I think, to be putting out about the importance of food and the importance of, you know, yeah. being careful about your, your food choices and caring about yeah. what gets put into your body. You're right. And maybe that's an opportunity for Greg's collagen lattes. <laughs> you heard it here you, first. You did. Maybe not in Roger, the north. are you taking notes? <laughs> maybe not in the north east. Try trial that in the Watford Gap. <laughs> what's your um, what's your final article this week uh, my final article is from national account manager news which i love actually i get their daily update every day and they, they do a great job at pulling together what's happening and uh, write pieces of the, the, their own but then also do, do some signposting too um and this was from the 18th so this is aldi starts trialing grocery delivery service with deliveroo so as we've spoken about previously, you know, the, the discounters without having an online uh, option um, have been challenged in, in this lockdown process. So they are now allowing customers to um, order up to 150 everyday products, um, such as bread, milk, produce through the delivery app and trialing that um, in Nottingham. Uh, and a further seven stores are going to come online in the East Midlands in June. So, um, and I guess talking about Greg's and Justy, you know, everyone's looking for new channels here. Um, and it's not just necessarily Aldi. Uh, I see that JS are also doing something similar in terms of Chop Chop. So being able mm -hmm. to get uh, your uh, groceries biked to you. Um, and converting more of their stores into dark stores to allow them to do the picking and fulfilment through there. So and maybe it's back to your comment about, you know, um, customers want confidence and maybe an automated store isn't um, all it all it's cracked up to be because you know when you think about groceries on bikes it makes me think of open all hours in granville you know back to the 1960s and 70s where you used to have groceries delivered in that way but yeah really interesting link up that they're trialing and uh, the the um chief executive aldi saying we hope to the new trial will provide more customers with greater access to quality and affordable food so they're obviously feeling the pinch it'll be interesting to look at the latest Kantar stats when they come out about how the discounters have, have fared and if their, you know, double-digit growth is continuing or if it, it's been stripped back a bit without having that convenience or online offering. What, what do you think? Do you think more people are going to be peddling around with your uh, milk and bread? I mean, potentially. Um, you, you definitely think that with so many customers, so many shoppers looking at online options that at least some of them can be expected to to stick with that new behavior once things have calmed down a little bit. I mean, I suppose it really will come down to how compelling those services are. If you are in lockdown and it's really, really difficult to get to a store or you're worried about uh, needing to self-isolate or, or wanting to minimize contact, all sorts of things suddenly look convenient and all sorts of things possibly look good value as well. I think that the test really is going to be how convenient um, and how good value those options will look once we are in a slightly more yeah. normal market. Um, I mean, I thought um, 
There was a really interesting comment piece uh, written by George Knott um, of The Grocer about this tie-up, actually. Um, and he, he, I think, makes a really good point in that he says, you know, in this particular trial, you know, there will be a markup on products and also a delivery charge. How compelling is that then in comparison to some other retailers yes. that, um, that, that, you know, Aldi would be going up against? So, yeah, I think it's, it's really, really yeah. interesting to see that they've um, gone into this partnership. I mean, again, you know, Amazon's decision to, um, to invest in Deliveroo is looking uh, very smart. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's certainly, it definitely feels like it's sort of accelerating some decisions that, that were perhaps in the pipeline. But, you know... I guess it's a single sort store trial for now. We'll have to see what the offer actually looks like once it's uh, being scaled up a little bit. Yeah. But I think price competitiveness, um, you know, if you are discounted, that's obviously, you know, a really, really important part of, of your proposition. You know, even if you've invested massively in, in boosting the quality of your of your own label, it still comes down to this idea that you provide excellent value in comparison to some of your bigger rivals. Yes. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they can square that circle and, you know, make the really difficult um, economics of, of online delivery work in harmony with a discounter model. Yeah. And it'll be so interesting to see what the, the others do in, in, in terms of um, expanding that the channel in the last five miles, if it's on bikes or drones or <laughs> just bigger capacity with, with, with more delivery trucks. So it's, it's definitely one to watch, isn't it? Absolutely. And it feels like, you know, if I, I suppose if you had an appetite to maybe experiment around delivery, I, I suspect you can get quite a bit of buy-in um, internally in, in your companies at the moment for that. So, yeah, um, yeah I think we'll be, we'll be seeing some really interesting experiments and pilots around that but as always i think um the real decisions um are going to be made once we're in slightly calmer waters and you know the business case for those fun experiments actually has to stack up as well sounds good Thank you. It's been lovely to talk to you and it's been so exciting to do our first proper The Pick List. I know, so exciting. Lovely to talk to you, Laura. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the feed industry who'd enjoy listening to The Pick List. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.